if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to finish up what we began last week. And the title of this message, uh, part 2, conclusion, is preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. God's bold promise. And um, one of my favorite old-time pastors, one that I grew up listening to and uh, reading all the time, and I still do, is... uh, Strong preacher of the word, pretty much my, one of my mentors uh, from afar, and that is Chuck Swindoll. And um, he said that he worked in a machine shop for four and a half years alongside a fellow named George. And his job was to sweep and clean out the shavings underneath the huge lathes and the machines that they were running. George was born again, and he loved the teaching of Scripture on prophecy. I remember hearing him sing hymns as he worked. Many of them had to do with the coming of Christ, such as in the sweet by and by and when the roll is called up yonder. Now, some of you younger folks probably don't even know what those hymns are. Look them up. (laughs) Do yourself a favor. (laughs) Late one Friday afternoon, about 10 minutes quitting time, when we were all weary, I looked at George and said, George, are you ready? And he said, "Uh uh-huh. But he was all dirty. He was just obviously not ready for quitting time. In fact, he looked like that he was ready to keep on working. I said, aren't you ready to go home? And he said, yeah, I'm ready. I said, look at you, man. You're not ready. You got to go get cleaned up. No, he said, let me show you something. And so he unzipped his coveralls, and underneath the coveralls were the neatest, cleanest clothes that you could imagine. <laughs> and he had them all ready. And he, all he did when the whistle blew was unzip those coveralls and step out of that coverall and walk up and punch his clock, and bang, he was gone. And he said, you see, I stay ready to keep from getting ready just like I'm ready for Jesus, unquote. Be ready. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. That was the urgent theme of one of Jesus' most famous sermons to his disciples before going to the cross, also known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And now out of all the things that may be difficult for us to grasp in that end times passage of Matthew is one thing that is certain. That day, the day of Christ's return, is a day of absolute certainty. For this reason, Jesus said, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. How ready are you? Let's face it, truth be told, there are probably a lot of things we need to change in order to be ready before quitting time, right? What do you think Jesus would be saying to us right now? Maybe that you and I need a fresh reminder that the certainty of his return emphasizes the need for true repentance. And that's what we began to look at last week in Malachi 3. Last week I pointed us to the fact that our world may be indeed very much like the people living in Malachi's day. If you're not there, turn to Malachi 3. Let me review um, these first six verses is what we're looking at. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not 
consumed. As I said last time, Malachi's world was astoundingly similar to our world today. People were holding on to a form of godliness but denying the power. Others had become brazen, shaking their fists at God, challenging his character. And they had given up on the prophecies concerning the Lord's deliverance. They had slipped into the cynical attitude that trying to maintain their moral and their religious distinctiveness among the rest of the world was absolutely useless. It was useless for them to even try. And they'd actually come to the place of believing that God had changed his mind about things and that he wasn't at all upset about the sin that was going on in the culture. In fact, they accused God of actually favoring those who do evil because justice wasn't being meted out. And I pointed out to you verse 17 of chapter 2 where the prophet says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? And that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? And then again in chapter 3, down in verse 13, it says, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, What have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge, and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. We can see that that attitude is starkly duplicated today. In short, they were saying, if there's a God of justice, he must be sleeping. He just doesn't care. So what's the point of obeying him and doing all this stuff? But we're not getting anything out of it. We're not profiting from it. In fact, we're under the hand of suffering and persecution. It's maddening, isn't it, when those who do wrong seemingly get away with it lock, stock, and barrel. Isn't it? That justice doesn't seem to be served. The problem was they misinterpreted God's patience for apathy. Did I say that again? They misinterpreted God's patience for apathy. But let me make this one truth perfectly clear. God is not apathetic about sin. He's not. He does care. And he's not asleep. And he's not late about keeping his promises. As we saw last week in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he is restraining himself on account of you, Peter wrote to his audience, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Remember I brought that out last time? Let me repeat that again. He's giving everyone space and time to change. And it's interesting that when Peter wrote those words, he was writing them to believers. You notice that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? It's not just the scoffing, godless, world-focused crowd that benefits from God's patience, Peter says, but he issues grace for any number of Christians who may be waning in their faith or becoming distracted from the main mission of sharing the good news of salvation with the lost. God, in his mercy, is leaving plenty of room for people to repent. And the longer he waits, the more mission we as the church have, has, right? To, to witness and to preach that Christ is coming. And that God's patience is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But you and I both know, as the scripture tells us, that that space and that time will eventually run out. And none of us knows when. And the people of Malachi's day assumed that they had all the time and space in the world, and they were wrong. Now, if you're of the opinion that you've got all kinds of time to get your act together before he returns, I think we need to rethink that a bit. God says in no uncertain terms, I'm coming, whether you're ready or not. I brought that out last week. This ought to be the real message that we are sharing with people in these last days. And by the way, you think we're in the last days? It's not just now, but the last days started when Jesus ascended into heaven. 
and they go all the way until he comes back again. We are in the last days. We just don't know how far into them we are. Today's message, as was last week's, is about preparation. Preparation, preparing ourselves for the coming of Christ. It's the same message that John the Baptist was born to preach and that Jesus our Savior began to proclaim at the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And last week we spent the majority of our time uncovering the fact that John the Baptist was the messenger God was going to send to the Jews to clear the way, that he will prepare a pathway. That's what verse 1 of chapter 3 says. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord you seek, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. To briefly recap, in response to the mocking question of chapter 2, verse 17, where's the God of justice? The prophet says, the God of justice is coming, and you're not going to like it. And that raises a concrete truth to us, which must be understood by everyone in contemporary society. In the end, no one, not one single person who has ever been conceived, will be able to avoid a confrontation with God. Can't sidestep it. In these verses, we have the Old Testament prophecies of Christ, first and second coming, all together. I, I shared that with you. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, was not received by the Jews when he came, right? He was crucified. But then he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father now. Had Christ been accepted then, the nation of Israel as their Messiah, the first time he came, there would have been no need for him to come a second time. But in the meantime, he's dealing specifically with the building of his church. Isn't that what he told Peter? Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what the Old Testament prophecies of texts like Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, all point to that one day the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But the people didn't recognize him when he came the first time. They didn't recognize their day of visitation, as Jesus said. Why? Because they were not prepared. They weren't ready. They had not taken the words of Malachi, nor those of all the other prophets seriously enough that God was preparing a pathway for his arrival and that it was being paved by the messenger of a new hope. That's what it says in verse 1. Who is the messenger of this new hope to which Malachi was referring? Well, you know from last week's message. Who is it? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. Jesus even identified him as such in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. But we won't have to turn there now. I want to move ahead and get on with the rest of this passage. But had the people realized that John the Baptist was the messenger of hope, they would have understood that Jesus was their Messiah. But they were unprepared. I can't stress that enough. Like many of the people of Malachi's day and hauntingly like the masses of people today, a deaf ear was being turned to the warnings of the messenger. People refused to make the adjustments to their lives or room in their hearts for Jesus, their Savior. Throughout this book, Malachi calls people to change their direction. That's what repent means, right? to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. 400 years later, count that, 400. It's a lot of years. 400 years later, John the Baptist came on the scene in clearing the way for Christ's coming by preaching repentance, and he lost his head over it. People didn't want to believe it. And I'll tell you, people don't want to believe it now. Whether or not people believed it, Christ came, didn't he? He came. He came anyway. 
Jesus came on the scene and preached the same message of repentance that John did, all the while offering grace and mercy to all who would receive him. He, Jesus, is what Malachi refers to now in the second part of verse 1 as the messenger of the covenant. Look at that. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There is a distinct difference between the first messenger in this verse and the second one. And not the same person. The second messenger is none other than the angel of the Lord of Old Testament history, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. And don't miss the clear references here to his deity. He is the one for whom the way is prepared by the first messenger. It says, clear the way before me, says the Lord. He is called the Lord, and it is his temple into which he will suddenly come. He will come unexpectedly, surprisingly, and with certainty. That's what the first messenger was preaching. And the implication is that people will not be ready for him. And Jesus did exactly that. As the messenger of the covenant, he fulfilled all the demands of the old covenant in his life. In addition, he suffered the penalties of our sin in his death on the cross, and he satisfied God's justice. Through his resurrection, he also ushered in a new covenant of grace. He is the messenger of the covenant that Malachi is prophesying here. And if you have any question about that, just look up in your spare time this week, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 40, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, and Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. Now, if you pay attention at communion services that we do every single month, you'll recognize all of these passages because we usually read portions of them. When Jesus sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper and he brought in the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, he said. The blood which is shed for all of mankind for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we celebrate every time we take communion together, isn't it? But you know what? People weren't looking for grace and mercy when Jesus came on the scene. Sure, they wanted mercy for themselves all right, but they wanted justice for everybody else. Isn't that how it goes? Jesus didn't come into the world for judgment the first time, according to John chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, but for salvation. His second coming, however, will be a whole different story, won't it? And that's bittersweet. Because we want Jesus to come, but we don't want people to perish who have not received him yet. His second coming will bring judgment for all those who do not receive him now. And that's the sad part of that news. And this is what will happen according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power when he comes to receive glory and praise from his holy people. Is that really what the people wanted when they clamored for the God of justice to come? Is that what you want when we say, Come, Lord Jesus? Yes, we want Jesus to come, but we got to know that that day is going to be a very hard day.
for some people. Malachi throws a little sarcasm into the picture with a few rhetorical questions and draws their attention to a very serious issue in the wake of the people's taunting question of 2.17, chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek, the God of justice and the messenger of the covenant that you appeal to and delight in, he will come suddenly into his temple. But is that what you really want? Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure it? Who will be able to stand and sustain his judgment? The implied answer is, no one can, right? No one can. Only those who are in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ can. Those are the only ones who can. And Christ is the only way into that relationship. Without Christ, without Jesus, no one can withstand the judgment of God upon sin. Cannot express the seriousness of that enough. And the future days will be proof of that fact. Turn to Revelation chapter 6 for a moment. I know this is a very hard message, but it's the message of truth that's contained in the Scriptures. And I think sometimes the church needs to be snapped up into a, an awakening state to recognize the fact that when Jesus comes back, the judgment will fall. And there are a lot of people that you and I don't want to face that judgment, right? We want them to be saved. Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of, of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Same question that Malachi asked. Who can endure the day of his coming? Only the people who are safe in Christ. Israel thought that the day of the Lord was going to be a great day of blessing for the people of God. That was Israel's great misstep. And it may be for many church people today as well. The day of the Lord ultimately does result in great blessing, but not before an intense process of purification takes place. Listen to the response of the prophet Amos to people who had the same misconceived idea that they were longing for the day of the Lord to come so that those people would be judged, right? Amos chapter 5, verse 18. How terrible it will be for you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. For then the Lord would rescue us from all our enemies. But you have no idea what you're wishing for. This is the prophet Amos. That day will not bring light and prosperity, but darkness and disaster. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion only to meet a bear. After escaping the bear, he leans his hand against the wall in his house and is bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be a dark and hopeless day without a ray of joy or hope. Those are some serious, heavy-duty words, aren't they? Who's he talking about? Talking about unbelievers, people that are not in Christ rightly related to God. 
Friends, I'm afraid that sometimes Christians have the same misunderstanding here. I've heard Christians talk about God's judgment as if it was going to be a long-awaited, blessed event. That finally, sinners would get their due. They'd be dealt with once and for all. But what about us? What about our own sins of which we have not repented? Should we really be longing for the day of the Lord? Are you ready for it? Am I ready for it? I hope so. Is our spiritual life, we need to ask ourselves this question, is our spiritual life so perfected that we would not shrink away in shame if Christ were to come right now? Francis Chan wrote these words of caution in his best-selling book, Crazy Love. He wrote, in the parable of the sower, Jesus explained that the seed is the truth, the word of God. And when the seed is flung onto the path, it is heard, but quickly stolen away. And when the seed is tossed onto the rocks, no roots take hold. There is an appearance of depth and growth because of the good soil, but it is only surface level. And when the seed is spread among the thorns, it is received, but soon suffocated by life's worries and riches and pleasures. But when the seed is sown in good soil, it grows and it takes root and it produces fruit. And then he writes this. He says, my caution to you, meaning the readers of the book, is this. Do not assume that you are good soil. What, Francis, what What are you saying? Has your relationship with God, he continues, actually changed the way you live? Do you see evidence of God's kingdom in your life? Or are you choking it out slowly by spending too much time, energy, money, and thoughts on the things of this world? I will say it again, he writes, do not assume that you are good soil. Uh, now, I remember when I read that, those words, I remember how arresting those words were when I first read them. And I didn't know if they were legitimate. I didn't know if I could actually believe what he was saying there. Yet judging from the reactions of many people over the last year regarding politics and pandemic and the mere fact that there was virtually no discernible difference in our culture between the lifestyles and attitudes of some professing Christians and those of non-believers, it reveals that to me and probably to the Lord and to everybody else that there is a serious lack of understanding of the biblical concepts of holiness, of humility, of repentance, of sorrow, confession, and consecration. I mean, I've known people who honestly believe that because they have proverbially accepted Christ, that no matter what kind of off-color, sinful behavior they're engaged in, it will be overlooked at Christ's return. He'll just kind of smile, and he'll say, oh, you're okay. I died for you, remember? It's all under the blood. Well, here's what is theologically true and biblically certain, Christians will be tried by fire. Christians will be tried by fire. Not as to salvation, but as to purity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15 says this, So each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I think we forget those verses, don't we? We like to write them out of the Bible. That's not your daily devotional usually, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 
Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I ask again, because I ask it of myself, as I read these verses of Scripture, I forget that all of us are going to be tried by fire. Not as to salvation, right? But as to purity. How prepared are we to be in Christ's presence? Are you and I holy enough in our current state to stand before him right now and not be burned by his refining fire? I mean, it bears thinking about, doesn't it? And it should order the way we live. You see, the error of Malachi's audience was presumption. And it could easily be ours as well. They thought that because their place was secured as the people of God that they could let their lifestyle slip. God certainly won't judge them. That gets back to Francis Chan's statement, right? Don't assume that you are good soil. Make sure you're good soil. The fact is, is that no one is able outside of Christ's help to endure or sustain his refinement process. Make sure that you and I, we need to make sure that we are rooted in Christ. Amen? And grounded in him. Because he will purify his people. Verse 2. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiners, a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. You see, he's talking to the, to the, to the people of God. He's, he's referring to the priests here. God's relationship with the people of Malachi's day was not automatic. It wasn't mechanical. And it's not with us either, is it? God cannot approve of evil and never will. His people, you and I, will be refined. The analogy Malachi uses of the manner in which God will refine his people couldn't be clearer. If people think that God approves of evil, his coming will prove the exact opposite, for he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap, it says. He will remove every impurity from his people and wash them clean. It's like unzipping the coveralls and taking it off. And we don't know what that's going to be like exactly. But the interesting thing here is, is that this process begins where? Where does it begin? In-house. It begins in-house, right? Verses 3 and 4. I just read it. I read verse 3. Let me continue with verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as, and as in former years. See, Malachi makes no mention of the other nations here in this text, does he? That's a different kind of judgment. This day of God's judgment will begin as a purification of Israel, his chosen people, especially its spiritual leaders and teachers, it says here, the sons of Levi. Friends, we need to recognize that God is at work purifying his people. He wants a spotless and wrinkle-free bride, doesn't he? Because he's going to present himself a spotless and wrinkle-free bride, as Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 says. And sometimes he uses fiery trials and afflictions and difficulties in life, even persecution, in order to bring about or start to bring about that purification process, doesn't he? In 1 Peter chapter 4, we begin to see some of that. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. The picture Malachi uses is of the refiner or the smelter who sits and focuses his entire attention on the metal in the crucible which is heated up intensely so that the dross will boil up and and burn away, and you can scrape it off, right? The refiner knows that the process of purifying is complete and impurities are entirely burned away. How does he know that? He knows that when he can look into that molten metal and all he can see reflected is his own image. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Scary picture. But nonetheless... It's as if you were looking in a mirror. And this is why God allows trials and sufferings in our lives to make us more like Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what the Lord does. That is what Christ is in the process of doing with us and what God will do in the future with the nation of Israel. If you want to see that, look at Zechariah chapter 3, verse 9. I'm sorry, Zechariah 13, verse 9. God is intensely concerned about the holiness of his people. And he begins the purifying process at his sanctuary, in-house. In fact, I truly believe that is exactly what this pandemic and cultural unrest is actually beginning to do. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 again in your Bibles and verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin, where? With the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved... What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is so instructive to us as to how we handle things that are going on in our lives. He will refine his own, burning away the impurities until he is left with a people who vividly reflect the image of his holiness. Maybe you're going through some incredibly difficult times in your life right now. You've experienced maybe some physical or spiritual or maybe some emotional upheaval. And it hurts. Maybe it burns like a fire. And you don't understand what's happening in your life. It may be that God is using these tough times to turn you into a son or daughter that more closely resembles Jesus. You bear on your person, watch this now, you bear on your person the brand marks of Jesus. Your trials, depending upon your response to them, will make you either bitter or better. You will either resist the process and resent him, or you can receive the process and resemble him. Can I say that again? You will either resist the process and resent him for it, or you can receive the process and resemble him. In the end. Because God wants to purify his people. Those who truly belong to Christ will come through the fire. That's what the scripture teaches. With perseverance of the saints, right? We will persevere through the fire. But those who don't, those who don't belong to Christ. Well, let's just say you don't want to be part of that group. Okay? You don't. Why? 
Because verse 5 here says in Malachi 3 that he will purge away all evil. Nothing's going to get through. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely. And against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Judgment may begin in-house, but you know it doesn't end there. As Peter warned, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? You know, an old preacher by the name of Vance Havner put his finger squarely on the pulse of our attitude toward the judgment of God when he said this, and I quote, there is a comfortable attitude about Jesus Christ in our churches today, and it is our greatest peril. In this day when law and order seem on the way out and criminals get only a slap on the wrist, it is well to remember that the wages of sin remain the same and what men sow they still reap, unquote. And by the way, that wasn't written yesterday. That was written many, many, many years ago. God will be a swift witness against sin when judgment comes. It's going to be quick. It's going to be total. That's what it says in verse 5. Every one of these listed sins here in verse 5 show that times haven't changed much, have they? All the sins that are listed there in verse 5 in Malachi's day are the same ones we still see today. People still pursue a path 180 degrees counter to God's revealed will. And the bottom line of it all, the common denominator is, is that people do not fear God. That's what it says at the end here. Those who turn aside the alien and who do not fear me says the Lord of hosts. People don't fear God. To learn how Americans feel about prayer, years ago, Life magazine once interviewed dozens of people. One person they talked to was a prostitute, aged 24 years old in White Pine County, Nevada. She says, a lot of people think working girls don't have any morals, any religion. But I do. I don't steal. I don't lie. The way I look at it, I'm not sinning. He's not going to judge me. I don't think God judges anybody. She obviously have not read Malachi 3 or any of the New Testament. Few notions are more comforting than the idea that God judges no one. The problem is that soothing idea is, is a false idea. Russell Kirk said this, he said, he who admits no fear of God is really a post-Christian man, for at the heart of Judaism and Christianity lies a holy dread, unquote. Do you understand what the fear of the Lord is? It's the beginning of wisdom. And we kind of soft pedal it and we say, oh, the fear of God, it's the reverential uh, understanding of who we are in God's sight. It's, re it's reverence. Well, yeah, that's part of it. But I think there's another part to the fear of God. I think there's a shaking in your shoes fear of God. I think there's a fear of God that if he appeared right now, we'd be flat on our faces, just like Isaiah saying, woe is me, I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said, right? When he saw the Lord. You have a healthy fear of God? Do I? Or have we, like this woman, convinced ourselves that God will not judge our sin? Now let's stop kidding ourselves about the fear of the Lord, shall we? You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the scripture also says in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And it's also the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom which causes us to realize that it is by God's grace alone. Grace alone that we are not consumed on the spot, right? 
Not because he approves of evil, but because he longs for us to repent and come home. God's patience is not apathy. He doesn't wish for anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Don't make the mistake of viewing God's grace completely from the wrong angle, friends. Don't think that he, like us, closes his eyes to sin, tolerating it. He doesn't. Far from it. God will never say, you will never hear God say, and I think I can say this with all certainty, you will never hear God say, sorry, I changed my mind. That thing is no longer sin. Uh, I was just kidding back there when I said that. No, he's not like us. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 50, verse 16 through 23, in the NIV says this, but to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw your lot in with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought the I am was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me and to the blameless, the one who sets his way aright, I will show my salvation. Translation, if you're in Christ, that's who God is going to show his salvation to. So he will prove his point in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's what the Jews of Malachi's day had forgotten all about. In their zeal to have God judge the sin resident in the world around them, they totally had ignored the fact that it was still resident in them. And we dare not forget it either. In our longing for Jesus to return, to judge sin, let us remember that it still manages to touch our lives as well, doesn't it? There is a way to stay clean in Jesus. Amen? All that harsh talk, all that hard preaching that you just sat through, there is an answer. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Amen? That's a promise. 1 John 1 9. So by continually confessing our sins and keeping short accounts with God, we will be ready when Jesus returns, amen? Let's be ready, shall we? Let's be ready. Just remember that illustration I used last week of the endurance and Shackleton's men, right? Roll up the sleeping bags every single morning because the boss may come today. In 1959, the USSR leader, Nikita Khrushchev, made an unprecedented visit to America. This was right after the death of Russian dictator Joseph Stalin. And Khrushchev, his successor, had already caused a global stir by denouncing in Russia, in a long and intricately detailed speech to the Politburo at the time, Stalin's many atrocities. His genocidal policies against the Ukraine, his cold-blooded assassinations of toters, informers, wonks, lieutenants, anyone who had become redundant, whose existence no longer served the party. His purges, both random and systematic, of anyone he didn't trust, which was almost everyone he denounced. Khrushchev was scheduled to appear at the National Press Club in Washington. And it was widely expected that he would deliver an, an abbreviated version of that same speech that he gave in Russia. Every newspaper and magazine of any standing made sure that they had at least one reporter there present. And the room was packed to the walls. 
And Khrushchev did not disappoint. He delivered, via translator, a shortened but potent indictment of his former boss, complete with corroborating evidence. When he finished, he opened the floor for questions. And someone called out from the crowd, Mr. Khrushchev, you have just given us an account of Mr. Stalin's many crimes against humanity. But you were his right-hand man during much of that. What were you doing? And the question was translated to Khrushchev. And when he heard it, he exploded with anger. Who said that? He demanded. No one answered. Wonder why. Who said that? He bellowed and glowered at the audience. And again, there was total silence. Who said that? He asked again, this time low and quiet, with more menace in his voice. And everyone looked down at their shoes. After a moment, Khrushchev said, that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing when those crimes against humanity was made, were made. Folks, what are we doing? What are we doing? On the day of judgment, what will we be doing? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and I'll end with this. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that would be our prayer, that we wouldn't be looking at our shoes because of shame, but that we would be staring in your face with a smile on our faces worshiping and glorifying your name, offering thank offerings for all that you have done for us, recognizing in, in abject humility that we are undeserving of salvation if it had not been for you. Let us be like that publican in Jesus' parable who beats on their breasts and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, the sinner. Keep short accounts with you and receive the salvation that you've given and never have a prideful thought about who we are other than that we are rightly related to you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and until you come again, may we be busy about your business. For Jesus' sake, I pray.